Welcome back to New Persuasive Words. I'm Scott Jones. And I'm Bill Bohr. And that was 40 Days and 40 Nights. By Ben Kaplan. I've never heard, listened to Ben Kaplan before. Ah, he, uh, he's a self-described... Uh, uh, he writes about uh, relationships and the end of civilization. So um, I thought that would be a good tie-in to our discussion today. I wonder if he's like a real lady killer with those kind of themes. Those are he, dark. He looks, he looks apocalyptic. All right, apocalyptic looks or not. I'm sure Elijah, you know, had his share of absolutely. Yeah, you know, the widow, Zarephath. Was your widow Zarephath? Yeah, I mean yeah. widow. I mean, yeah. people went lonely. Maybe the whole Jezebel thing was merely transference. What are they saying? <laughs> what are they saying? The wet in the wedding crashers that death is nature's most powerful aphrodisiac. Yeah. So maybe you know, could be. widow could be. Could could be. be. So we're coming off uh, more interesting times and current events. We've got a. Uh, we've had conventions. We've had all manner of kind of political developments. Yeah. I'm actually working on a piece right now uh, and, uh, and thinking about Hillary Clinton. Uh, I'm reminded of the wisdom of my great uncle Bud. Uh, when asked if he was lying, he goes, I don't lie. I'm just reckless with the truth. Um, and then when I think of what's been going on with Mr. Trump, um, I think he has become a poster child for the personality disorder chapter in the DSM-5. For those of you who aren't initiated, that's the uh, diagnostic uh, rubric. And if you actually look up narcissistic personality and all of the indicators of such, he hits all of them. That's impressive. It is impressive. Usually, usually, you know, you only need to hit three or four under any category. But um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. It's, it's. Uh, I mean, this would be on partisanship and things like that. I mean, I, I just think that he has come unhinged. Yeah, he's, uh, he, something's happening. Something is going on for certain. And I don't know, like somebody, I think, who was it? Matt Lauer on the Today Show sat down. With, it was talking with Chelsea Clinton. And they said, do you think you could have like a daughter summit with Ivanka and just get things together? Sort of, you know? Yeah, I, you know, it could be early dementia. It could be a lot of different things. I mean, he's not a young man and he's, uh, has... You know, my guess is he's worked harder than he's ever worked uh, over these last uh, year, and uh, maybe it's just finally taking its toll on him. He does hit the ball much further than Michael Bloomberg, though. <laughs> he was in interview. They were asking about the Bloomberg. Well, I barely even know the guy. I know, but here's a picture of you guys playing golf. Well, yeah, we played golf together, and I'll tell you what: Trump hit the ball a lot longer. You know what's funny is the one uh, the one white male demographic he's not doing very well with. Uh, would be uh, billionaires. <laughs> yeah. He's got the poorly educated, though, and there's more of them. Yes, there are, that's for sure. That's, yeah. that's, uh, that is definitely the case. Yeah. So 
Uh, it's you know it is interesting too the thing. Um, so I was th- I was thinking about people and the the problem with the whole make America great again. But aren't we always saying that on both sides? Isn't aren't we always looking back on to some level of certain things? Like I mean, I hear people on the left and the right to cry uh, where we've gone. You know, like like maybe it was the New Deal and cutting back. Things like entitlements or changing tax rates or whatever. Like, so I mean, I feel like people kind of beat up on on the "Make America Great Again" thing, uh, largely again because of not just the message but the messenger. But I, I, isn't there always a retroactive, romantic kind of nostalgic mode in in our political life? Well, yeah, I think that I think that's something that's pretty consistent in human history. Um, you know, the Roman historians of the you know, early second century, uh, you know, long for the day of Augustus. Now, if you've been around during Augustus, you may not be longing for that day, but that was the Romantic period. Ignatius of Antioch, writing in the last, um, you know, the, well, last decade of the first century, first decade of the second century, bemoaned the fact on how far the church had gotten from the apostolic age. I mean, we're really talking, you know, a few decades, but... I, I, there's this natural tendency to have this one dynamic where we long for an idealized past that, that really never existed. Um, and there's part of that I think is okay, because what you could be doing theoretically that's constructive is returning to founding values. Okay, this is who we aspire to be, and that we need to get back to those core values. I think that part is actually fairly con- constructive. I think, for instance, in Christianity, there are some good things about people saying, okay, this is who we are. What's the, what, what was Jesus really about? And, and looking and measuring, um, measuring ourselves against that, that uh, ideal and that model. The trouble is that when you actually think you can replicate that, or if you over-romanticize the past, then not only do you misread the sources or misread the origins— but you have a you have a real possibility of of doing things totally opposite from from what you're hoping to accomplish. Yeah, you know, one of these two that I think where these kind of themes are concerned about core values and founding values. T.S. Eliot in uh, a book uh, a book called um, Christianity and Culture, which concludes the second section. I think is called Notes Toward an Understanding of Culture. But he says this. He says, liberalism tends to release energy rather than accumulate it, to relax rather than to fortify. It is a movement not so much defined by its end as by its starting point, away from rather than towards something definite. Our point of departure is more real to us than our destination. And I think there's something to that, that basically when people are talking about a vision for America, I mean, you were founded on, in large part, enlightenment liberal values, right? And so enlightenment liberal values are to sort of give the individual the most latitude to lead, you know, their life to the end of life, liberty and happiness, you know, to give them the most space to do that. So like, it, it, does it get harder to talk about bigger values? Because really what we exist for is to make sure everybody can be a better and better consumer and not tread on the rights of other consumers. And well, citizens. see, I, I think that's the libertarian perversion of it. I mean, in some levels, the I think we are... We are um, a product, a long product of what can vaguely be called Western civilization, which kind of begins with 
with Greek ideals. And in one level, I think the unfolding of Western civilization is taking some of those Greek ideals, which only a handful of freed white men could enjoy in the limited situation of the Greek city-state. And again, this isn't a straight line, but over the centuries, and you, you throw, you know, the Romans, you know, you throw in the Roman influence and then the Germanic and Frankish and Anglo-Saxon, uh, and then, you know, you filter it through, you know, Enlightenment philosophy, the French eyes, and then, of course, some of the American experiment is that, uh, you know, really in many ways, what the Western ideal is, is really the American ideal right now. But there were always kind of counterbalances to both the individualism, a sense of the absolute. Uh, there were a lot of, there was a kind of a body of values that went into that. And each each manifestation of it and each, you know, encountering of a different um, element, whether it be Christianity or French Enlightenment philosophy or, you know, Lockean thought, whatever, nonetheless, this basic, what it meant uh, to be human, what the role of society and culture were, were kind of variations on a theme that, that continue to um, really, I mean, in many ways, uh, this is not my words, this is uh, Hansen's words. Uh, the, let me give the witch Hansen. I always get confused with my Hansen's. But uh, uh, Victor Davis Hansen, that even when you're talking about globalization, you're really talking about Western values. Now, what you may be seeing is the breakdown of that project and the splintering of it. So, uh, and there's always been reaction to it. I mean, it's funny listening to Donald Trump I mean, he's one part Whig Party protectionism, okay, and he has he's also one part of the know nothing anti immigration. I mean, there's he's just a distillation of of in some levels things that have reacted against that unit of vision, and that unit of vision is you know predates modernity. So this isn't just modernity and post modernity, but this is in some levels the very foundation of of what culture has been since the, the middle of, um, you know, the middle of uh, the, the first millennial BC. Yeah, but I think there's a break. I mean, I think to some degree there's a, there's a desire to break with a segment of the tradition in, in sort of post-Enlightenment liberalism. So, so we're not to be governed by, you know, you look at reading like Immanuel Kant's essay, What is Enlightenment, right? That you're not under tutelage of of a priest or a tradition or, you know, that, that basically we're autonomous. I mean, that the highest level of ethical life is autonomy, right? You're self-legislator, that, that you know, you, you are your own moral compass discerned through the mature reflection of autonomous human reason. So again, I think that like when you're trying to inspire, I think you're right. We do borrow from city on a hill kind of traditions and that, that sort of thing. But I think there's just an inherent tension running through the whole thing that, that, you, the, again, I think Elliot has it right that that liberal societies, liberal democracies, do tend to be more oriented by what they broke from than what they came from. So we're not pre-modern. We're not, you know, we 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 are trying to have more liberative politics that include more people. That, you know, we are trying to, and again, me, me, both the la I mean, no, the libertarian spinoff on it and the liberal end might look different in that I think maybe it's that the libertarians fear is that liberty will be encroached on by by the government. Uh, and maybe the liberal sphere is that liberty will be removed by lack of means and opportunity. So that, you know, that actually for people to really be thriving, autonomous consumers who can, you know, captain their own destiny, they've got to actually have certain resources 
and and the thing's got to be distributed more. And you know that it's over the distribution and things like that, and how much the government should play a role in that. We, that you would get the liberal and libertarian tension. But in the end, our, I mean, the goals are pretty similar and and that and not robust. Yeah. Well, yeah, and, and I, you know, I think there is. Uh, there's. I've, it's funny. I, I've been uh, this summer. I've been trying to go back and read novels I should have read. I've, I've never, I mean, I, I've never probably read enough fiction. And uh, I just got done reading um, The Master Margarita, which is a wonderful novel. And I'm, I'm reading Larry McMurtry's Lonesome Dove. I didn't even watch a TV show years ago when it was on. But uh, it, it's a reason I won a Pulitzer. It's just amazing writing. But it's funny you were talking about this issue. I just read this. Um, you know, Gus and, and Call were, were two Texas Rangers who you know, help bring Texas under control against the Comanches and Mexican banditos. So 20 years later, they're writing to San Antonio. And um, Gus says this, uh, uh, on the way to San Antonio, they passed two settlements, nothing more than a church house and a few little stores, but settlements anyway, and not 10 miles apart. Now look at that, Augustus said, them, them people are making towns everywhere. It's our fault, you know. And then he goes on to talk about how they chased the Indians and the banditos away, and maybe they should have left them. And, uh, and this is what Gustin says. If I had wanted civilization, I'd have stayed in Tennessee and wrote poetry for a living. <laughs> Augustus said, me and you done our work too well. We killed off most of the people that made this country interesting to begin with. And so I do think there's a, there, there is also this dimension of... And, and it takes different that something there's a there's a there's a hegemony behind civilization. In other words, whether it be um, when I went to seminary and was getting my uh, advanced education, it was uh, still the if you are white Protestant male, you're probably guilty for everything that ever has been done wrong in the world, uh, and that there's some kind of civilization equates oppression, lack of creativity. The death of nativism, the death of diversity in some ways. So there, there is always this kind of romance, if you would, of not only the idealistic, idealistic past, but the unsettled past. That that when before there was civilization made by them, we were we were more natural. I think, for instance, the way some people idealize uh, Native American life, or they idealize ancient paganism, um, you know. They they tend to see what they want to see there without the dark side of all those things as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that that's definitely the case. I I just, I just wonder what you know if I think right now people are getting more politically interested just because the candidacies are so. It's almost it's like it's like the rubbernecking thing. Like there's so, there's so there's so many like uh, train wrecks to gawk at uh, on both sides right now, but. You know, and again, I think the Democratic convention, like whatever your politics, I think if you're a, a fair commentator, you have to say that like it, it was a much more effective and pro- and inspiring convention oh, than than the Republican. I mean, despite the fact, I mean, the, one of my favorite parts of the Republican convention was when Brian Williams was commentating with Rachel Maddow, and like she's trying to keep a straight face. He goes, "Of course, this is Scott Bayo of Happy Days," and Chachi in Joni Loves Chachi. Like, so I'm just like, I, I can't believe I'm hearing Brian Williams in the sort of serious, dignified journalist voice say Joni Loves Chachi. Chachi <laughs> of the infamous 
Joni loves Chachi. But yeah, like I think that, you know, for celebrities, for diversity, for uh, lack of offense, other lots of things. Right? Yeah, like, well, well, I, mean, I mean, just certain things. If you're going to plan a convention, don't have keynote speakers that hate the candidate. Yeah, well, it's true. And, and of course, Michelle Obama talking about living in a house that slaves helped build. And it was a beautiful speech. Joe Biden, you know, reminded me of Coach Biden, you know, uh, the night before the big game, you know, I mean, it was, it was over the top, but it was, um, it was genuine. I mean, it's, it's who he is. And of course, I, you know, uh, gosh, who was the guy who worked for McCain, who sometimes does commentary for MSNBC? Uh, Woody Harrelson played him in that movie. I can't think of his name right now, but moving in game yeah. change. But anyway, I mean, it was like he was at a revival meeting because I did listen to Obama's speech live. And afterwards, he's just raving and he's going, uh, he's the best speechwriter, presidential speechwriter since Lincoln. And now I don't know if that's true or not, but I'm thinking this is a guy who tried to beat him. I mean, this is a guy who worked very hard to beat Obama. And Joe Scarborough, a conservative, former conservative Republican congressman, Said the speech remind him of Ronald Reagan, and there was there was you know there was there, it was a it was a it was a strange dynamic, and um, you know maybe it's part of the dynamic. If you're in power in a given situation, then you're positive because you things are going your way. If you're out of power, then you have a tendency to be more negative. Um, but I do think that this election is just different. For instance, you know when John McCain was running against. Barack Obama, and somebody in the crowd started disparaging Obama, claiming he wasn't born in America and all this and that. John McCain shouted the guy down. Yeah. Well, Donald Trump shouted down a baby. <laughs> and that baby had it coming, man. You've preached the baby crying. It's tough. It is tough. It is tough. I've never, though, I've never lost to a baby. Yeah. I, 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 I maybe have broken the sound system getting louder, but I've never lost to a baby. Yeah. I think that, that, it was interesting because Eddie Gloud, who's the chairman of the African-American Studies Department at Princeton, wrote a piece where it appeared yesterday. It was, it was in a major newspaper on why he won't vote for Hillary Clinton. And he basically said that, you know, look, I, I like the anti-racism and the anti-sexism, but that's not enough for me. And basically, she's a corporatist. A lot of the policies that, uh, you know, I think, I, you know, it would not be much change and it would be a continued sort of presidency for the 1%. And he made an interesting point. He said, you know, why is it that when people say Trump's not a conservative, he's not a Republican, he has no idea, I won't vote for this guy, it's lauded. But when people on the left say we won't vote for Hillary Clinton because on principle, like we don't like her principles, they're demonized. So I thought it's a really interesting point. Yeah, I, I do too. I mean, I think it's okay to say, all right, you know, if I, you know, if if you think the election of Donald Trump would be a disaster for this country and the world, and it's going to be close, I think it's okay to argue with your friends who maybe think about voting libertarian or green to say, you know, there are times where you don't, you can't vote your extreme conscience. You have to vote, you have to vote for the larger good. So I think that's a legitimate discussion to have. But I agree with you 100, 100%. There's a kind of, um, I think because of the negativity towards Donald Trump has been so overwhelming in certain circles. I think the kind of hypocrisy, really, you pointed out, is absolutely the case in, in many circles. And I, you know, I kind of, I, I've always been attracted to parliamentary systems where you have multiple parties, mostly because I don't live there. Because everyone I know, <laughs> everyone who lives in those situations says it only looks good from afar. But uh, this would be a year, I mean, to me, I'd like to have another option 
but uh, libertarianism and the Green Party to me aren't really uh, again. Uh, and you, you and I, I mean, I, I'm not disparaging the libertarian candidate, but I, you know, you and Who I left had, New Mexico with a 72 percent approval rate. I, I just, you know, I've been pretty clear about my view of libertarianism if it's on the left or the right. I just, I don't see how you ultimately govern with that or lead a society. But that's a different discussion. I would love to see a nice social democratic party or uh, some sort of wonderful Swiss party that, you know, that exists or uh, I would love to have an option that, um, that would be able to vote exactly how I do, but that's not how we work. We don't. Yes. We, we have a two party system and probably will for the foreseeable future. Uh, T.S. Eliot says he's talking about England here, but I mean, we could talk about this in terms of the United States as well. Without Christianity, we might, of course, merely sink into an apathetic decline. Without faith, and therefore without faith in ourselves, without a philosophy of life, either Christian or pagan, and without art. Or we might get a totalitarian democracy, different but having much in common with other pagan societies, because we shall have changed step by step in order to keep pace with them, a state of affairs in which we shall have regimentation and conformity without respect for the needs of the individualistic soul. The puritanism of a hygienic morality in the interest of efficiency. Uniformity of opinion through propaganda and art only encouraged when it flatters the official doctrines of the time. Yeah, which, by the way, is the theme of the Master Margarita critique of, uh, of, the, you know, of the Soviet Union and the way art, you know, the, the patron of the art, it's, it's hilarious, you know, in terms of it, kill, it kills creativity. You know, uh, did you, this could be a spoiler alert, did you watch the end Last episode of Preacher? I have not yet. All right. I just got sucked into Stranger Things. We bet my wife, Linda, I banged out in a day and a half. It's unbelievably great. All right. Well, because I'm just saying the, the last episode, in some levels, uh, I hope all of our anti-Christendom friends watch it because um, the unintended consequences. We have so many. That's right. The unintended consequences of, of altering a, your vision of the deity and the stabilizing effect that has on society is illustrated in the last few minutes of the episode. So I, <laughs> I can't, I can't, uh, since you haven't seen it, I won't spoil it for you. But, uh, but I think there's a sense where Christianity has become, has been part of the Western story, um, you know, uh, for the almost the last 2000 years. And it's, it's an important part, an important stabilizing part of civilization and has made Western civilization better. Many of the reforms, in the exclusivities that were inherent in some of that, you know, the elitist vision, for instance, of, of the Greek polis, you know, Christianity, I think, is slowly um, chiseled that away, along with other progressive ideas. But I, I do think, um, you know, that, that's, that's an, I, I think Elliot has a really interesting um, insight there. And he lived it. I mean, he lived it. Oh, yeah, yeah. 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 He goes on to say that to those who can imagine and are therefore repelled by such a prospect, one can assert that the only possibility of control and balance is a religious control and balance. That the only hopeful course for society, which would thrive and continue its creative activity in the arts of, civiliza- the arts of civilization is to become Christian. That prospect involves at least discipline, inconvenience, and discomfort. But here, as hereafter, the alternative to hell is purgatory. Yeah, you know, as, as listening to that, it's been a while since I, I've read that. You know what struck me is we often talk sociology about, well, what happened after World War II? Why did churches grow in this country? And, and, um, and of course, you know, we've been living, you and I have spent most of our life living in the decline of that. 
And of course, all the spin doctors kind of celebrate it. You know, <laughs> you, know I mean, you and I both have been in, in national meetings where we lost, you know, half a million people last year and we celebrate that. Yeah, 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 yeah it's just better. That's but you know what? I think maybe one of the reasons um, Christianity took a real hit after World War I, in part because of the way the establishment, I, I think because of just the, the sheer uh, nihilistic nature of that war uh, and, uh, and, and, and what it did to French society, German society, English society. Um, but I think one of the reasons there was a religious renewal in this country after World War II is people realized what they had just defeated. I mean, there's a little sense of that. It says, you know what, we, this is what we could have had. This is what we defeated. And I think it's interesting. And there was a lot of excesses to the anti-communist thing. But they rightfully saw in Stalin's Soviet Union a different version of what they had just defeated in Hitler's uh, fascism. And I think the religious impulse was was exactly tapping into something Elliot says there. Yeah, it's funny. I was with two Jewish intellectuals, one on the right, one on the left recently, and they both said to me that their hope for saving civilization is Christianity. I said, that's a lot of pressure on us. And one of them said, well, there's a lot of you expletive, expletive errs, <laughs> and you're all over the place. Right. <laughs> but yeah, it, is, it was interesting to hear them say that. That because I think, again, what is in vogue is the anti-Christendom critique, the anti-Constantine critique. And yet here you have two people who are part of God's chosen people who are in a distinct minority, who are looking to the faith of the majority to seek the shalom of Babylon. Uh, so I was just, I was, uh, <laughs> I, I was struck. Well, you know, you know what's interesting to me, and, I, I, and I've been asked this question a lot of times over the years, um, you know, because I was just, you know, uh, just becoming a young man uh, when the religious right was really in the 80s was, uh, was, you know, at the forefront. And, you know, evangelicals, you know, that was the election evangelicals stopped voting for Democrats. And, um, you know, one of the rally flags, I mean, it was always interesting to see the bones that the, the political strategists would throw the evangelicals. One was getting prayer back in the school. And I remember being asked in a public forum about that. How do you feel about it? I said, as a Christian, I don't want it. As a Christian, I don't want prayer back in the school because to me, it's a total misunderstanding of what prayer is. I, I, you know, I don't, you know, for me, a prayer is not some sort of uh, ritualistic um, society binding event. It's conversation with the living God. I said, but as an American, when we start th throwing out those symbolic things that bind us, then I think I'm, I'm, I'm concerned as a citizen. And, you know, when I, when I hear and I read Christians spirit, you know, acting like it's spiritual not to vote, well, then, first of all, not only is that in direct disobedience to Romans 13, because you are the magistrate, you live in a representative democracy, for heaven's sake, learn something. Secondly, um, there's a sense where you have given up part of um, praying for the good of the country that you're in. You've, you've given up part of the fact of your stewardship of working for the well-being of, of, of who you are. I mean, there's always been that desire to go off into the mountains, go off on your own, have the perfect Christian community, just be you and God alone. And it's interesting that church history is full of people who wanted to do that, uh, who God didn't let them do that, and we're all better Christians because of that legacy. So I, I think that gives you, we kind of circle back around. The idealized past— um, 
when it bec- if it's to inspire us, it's a good thing. If it tries, if we try to make it into a template of how we should live and be, then I think it becomes an idolatry. And idolatry, as you know, is bad. Stick with us, rate us in iTunes as we make this podcast great again. <laughs> this song, I wrote this song thinking a little bit about politics, and I was thinking about how important doubt is in politics. You as an elected official, uh, that's right, I'm talking, not you guys, I'm assuming. Anyways, it's, I, think, I think doubt is a very important faculty, and this, this song is about that. Bring me birds with broken wings, men with all the answers, people who have killed. Give me incurable cancers, bring me beaches slicked in oil. Give me a disregard for doubt, streetlights shine on broken roads where no one is about. I want that hopeless green depression, punishments without a cause. But give me impotent obsession, disregard for laws. I want the trees in single file, bring the corpse of something rare. Show me children who are sinners, show me mounds of I climbed up the mountain just to kill my son An angel tried to stop me with a ram Well, he said, your mind's infected But I said, you lack perspective You gotta walk the bottom if you wanna see the top La-da-da-da, la-da-da-da Can't drink. Wheels that won't stop spinning. Teach my children not to think. I want the fruit that tastes like nothing. Extra thumbs for every crook. Give me lessons without questions. Mild disdain for books. Give me metaphors unraveled. Poetry defined. Bring me the head of Dionysus. But please don't spell out the wine. Trade the future for the present. Trade the ashes for my history. I don't need to look inside. I know the answer to the mystery. I climbed up the mountain just to kill my son An angel tried to stop me with a rail Well, he said your mind's infected But I said you lack perspective You gotta walk the bottom if you want to see the top
Thank you so much, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for being here. Thank you for your support. Have a beautiful evening. Hopefully I'll see you again real soon.